0: Assalamu alaykum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. Folks, you can keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And that's the same username, the same handle that you use to subscribe to the podcast because we know Everyone loves a good podcast, and you're not going to find a better than Radio Islam. So wherever you're at, if you're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or any other platform, you will find us at Radio Islam USA. So subscribe, rate, review, all of that great stuff, and most importantly, share. Before we begin, we would like to thank our sponsors, IFN and ICN. So Islamic Foundation North and Islamic Center of Naperville, we thank you for your support. We appreciate it. And if I had an applause button or something, I would give you a standing ovation. All right, folks, uh, I am happy to have joining me in studio, Dr. Insha Malik. She is an assistant professor at Cardin University in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, she's a former Fox Fellow at Yale University and the author of Muslim Women, Agency and Resistance Politics, The Case of Kashmir. We welcome her to Radio Islam. assalamu Alaikum. Alaikum salam. Thank you
1: so much for having me.
0: So you have been on a pretty breakneck pace since uh, since you got here. Uh, we're <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so first off, I want to say, uh, you said the flight alone was 30 hours from Afghanistan here.
1: Yeah, so yeah. I also sort of took, because I couldn't do a 30-hour flight straight, so I took a short um you know, touchdown down in Istanbul, Mm -hmm. so that I feel sane. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so pretty much 30 hours.
0: Yeah, that's rough. That's rough. But you are here for a very important reason. Uh, You're shedding light. You're sharing information about a a people that is often overlooked. Uh, We often hear about uh, India and Pakistan uh, and their relationships or contention between the two uh, uh, nations but we often overlook uh, the Kashmir. Uh, and they're right in the middle. And um, uh, according to the uh, Human Rights Watch in uh, 2018, they have recommended an, uh, an investigation into human rights abuses uh, at the hands of the uh, Indian military which have occupied uh, the Kashmir since, what is it, 49? 47. 47. Um, Tell us a bit about, uh, talk to us about this population, and uh, what are some of the things that, like Kashmir uh, 101, that folks that, you know, they're not familiar, what are some of the things, first of all, that that, that we need to know?
1: I think, first off, that we need to know Kashmir is a historical region. Um, It's pretty much in the memory of people who have lived in and around that region for more than 8,000 years. So you have Kashmir being talked about by the Chinese scholars. We have Kashmir being talked about by the Persian scholars. And we have substantial amount of reference to Kashmir region in the Sanskrit old texts. So Kashmir is in the memory of people who live around the region. And perhaps after the British colonization of the region, it has also become internationalized through... Um, something we know as Kashmir sweater, like so, mm. it the word Kashmir is there in everyone's mind, but the people of Kashmir are invisibilized. People wouldn't be able to tell you they would able they would be able to tell you there is a region called Kashmir and it is uh, beautiful and it is so exotic, mm. but they wouldn't be able to tell you who are the people who live there. Right, right, and that is. Also, where I intervene as a scholar and I question this universal acceptance of Kashmir as an exotic location and without as if somehow without any population or any history of its own Mm -hmm. Um, so therefore when we are looking at Kashmir what we're looking at is more than 12 million people in that region so it's definitely population wise not a small area and when we're talking about the area-wise, we are actually looking at something like United Kingdom in mm-hmm. terms of area. So both in terms of area and both in terms of population, it is a significant place and it has a significant history of its own.
0: <clears throat> when you talk about, uh, I, I couldn't help but notice, I looked at your Twitter feed and the, the first thing that caught me, it might've been a pinned tweet, said, um, Kashmir is not a sweater. Uh, just to mention that point about this place being uh, uh, exoticized—that's um, a word—and um, divorcing it from a people, and and particularly some of the issues that are, I think, that people who are dedicated to um, to freedom, human dignity, uh, issues of occupation, uh, freedom of movement. Uh, these are things that are going to be uh, germane to the conversation of life in the Kashmir. Can you talk about how, uh, how women, because the the title of your book, right, I have to get this book and read this book, uh, but how women are represented in that struggle for uh, human dignity. And I know I just jumped over a lot of stuff, so I'll, I'll leave it to you to kind of fill in the gaps on that.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think you're right that we need to first really set up much more understanding of Kashmir before we talk about women in particular. Um, And in that sense, that is also what brought me to U.S. on this grand lecture tour Mm -hmm. from last 15 days. I have been going to different universities and I was invited by Northwestern as a visiting scholar. And I have been talking to people, just anyone who is interested in the region. Uh, so one of the things that I think needs to be said is, and and this is often the problem when we talk about Kashmir, is we get so lost in the narratives from Indian state or Pakistani state about the region that, you know, we, we lose interest because it gets so complicated. Um, One of the things that are unsaid about the region are that the region is in this struggle not since 1947, but since 1846, which is when the British actually controlled the region. So a lot of your listeners are already familiar with how British colonized the region. There are two ways, where they made the direct economic and political colonies, and they also made allies with certain princely states. Mm -hmm. So Kashmir stands different from both India and Pakistan in that it was never directly colonized by the British. Instead, it was gifted by a treaty that we know as the Treaty of Amritsar of 1846 to a foreign king who was collaborating with the British for them to fight in the Anglo-Sikh war. So they just basically gifted Kashmir to him for his loyalty. Mm. So, And right in 1846, you see Kashmiris coming together and defending what they saw as an attack on their sovereignty. So it's not just about post-colonial history. It's not just about British leaving the region, but it's also about what Kashmiri people have been doing in that region for a long, long time. So A, that the whole struggle of Kashmiris starts very much much earlier than both india and pakistan's struggle for freedom and that it has substantially remained a people's movement ever since and it might be interesting also for your readers to know that the first labor movement in the entire south asian and central asian region hmm. happened in kashmir oh, wow. way back way back in 19 uh, sorry way back in 1890s which is when the craftsmen of Kashmir, who are very well known universally for making shawls and beautiful you know, um, artwork, mm. they come together against this brutal taxation laws of the kings um, and cut their thumbs, all assembling together and cutting their thumbs and saying, we're not gonna accept these brutal taxation laws. Wow. And that's considered to be the first labor uprising of the entire region. So this is a people who have a very strong history on their side about how they view themselves, right? So, and what you see is remarkable coming to the question of women is that women have always participated in that struggle and always found themselves somehow central to that consciousness of Kashmir, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: You know, what I I find also... um, interesting here is the connection. We, we often see events uh, as isolated and not connected in a, in a global um, uh, in a, as far as a part of a global framework. So you said in 1890 what, 92 or 3? Yeah. 92? So while this was happening uh, uh, in uh, South Asia in the United States in the mid-1890s uh, one of the longest standing unions uh, in the United States was being incorporated uh, and that's the uh, the iron workers Union yeah so in 1896 uh, so the the history of of uh, I guess the fight for from working people for you know wages and security and safety and all those things that is a it's a global concern uh, and it's interesting to see that at around the same time these these were, uh, these are shared experiences that are going on but back to back to the uh, Kashmir um how have because uh, you're also a poet right I didn't mention that right but I, I read this that you're a poet as well um can you talk about how art has been um, or has it been an integral part of uh keeping that that history alive that history of resistance and awareness of that, you know, that we are actually an independent nation, um, independent people that's still struggling for independence. Uh, does the art reflect that as well? Uh,
1: more so, I guess, historically, Kashmir is a place of artists. <clears throat> and there is an insider joke that we do say that Kashmiris could never become independents because they were never warriors. And they were more inclined to uh, softer arts like philosophy and poetry. So Kashmir has a rich history of poets who, from generations to generations, have tried to capture the the violence of that place, capture the moment. So there is a rich history of how Kashmiris have responded through art to the to the crisis that they have lived through ever since the first moment of eighteen forty six, and then. Uh, furthermore, how it gets complicated when the British decide to exit the region and that's when Kashmir becomes further complicated um, and and that I think that's important to understand that moment as well. it's because the kings are left to decide that whether they should join Kashmir with either of the, the newly formed states in 1947 right. so and that's when the entire conflict, becomes completely militarized and becomes uh, comes under this reeling intervention from these newly formed states of India and Pakistan, um, and the king is not able to decide whether Kashmir should go to either. and And I'm my understanding is the reason he cannot decide is because Kashmiris are a diverse group of people. They are a nation, mm. and they can never unite on one solution. So. That's the characteristic of any nation, so right. you will have people who have left politics who have you know more right wing politics who are uh, more interested in let's say other political formulations such as Islamist political formulations sure. so um, we he could never have actually united them to say we should go to India or Pakistan so that choice further complicated the region's politics and A certain set, and I think it's worthy to mention, that a certain set of Muslims in a region called Punj, they came out and had this upheaval where they demanded from the Dogras that Kashmir, since it was more than 90% Muslim, should go to Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And as a response to that, in that single one year, Dogra King armed his Hindu um, population to repress this upheaval. According to the scholar Christopher, Christopher Snidden, who is a Canadian scholar, and he has worked on Kashmir, um, he says more than 500,000 Jammu Muslims began a migration to go to Pakistan, but only 10 people arrived. So what we're looking at is a historic...
0: I wish, I wish people could see, because like, like my face, I'm just aghast. 500,000 people left. People
1: left, yes. 10 arrived. Only 10 arrived. Um, so this is perhaps the biggest massacre in Kashmir's history, and it is so under, I mean, nobody talks about it. And it's, right. it's only the Western scholars who have now begun to put some light on it. Um, and then there's, there's another dimension to it that in the Kashmir Valley, that's where I come from, we have a new popular socialist leader called, Java, uh, called uh, Sheikh Abdullah who is aware of what's going on, but at the same time, he doesn't want to go to Pakistan. So now the complications are even further um, you know, coming to the fore. Um, and also because Sheikh Abdullah has a history with Kashmiri people, because at, at one point, Kashmiri people couldn't get, didn't have right to education. They were landless laborers, feudalism was rife, and he was one of the first Kashmiri Muslims to gain education, Western education, and demand these rights for his people. So it was also known as the Lion of Kashmir. Um, okay. And so now the Dogra King and Sheikh Abdullah, they're sort of in this conundrum. And at the same time, we have people coming from up in our north, which is now in Pakistan. It's a Pashtun-dominated area called Waziristan. Okay where they hear about the massacre and they are filled up with this emotional zeal to liberate Kashmir. So they attack Kashmir. And what we are left they with now, Kashmir. they attack Kashmir to liberate it from the Dogra king. So the, so what we know in our history as, a, as the tribal invasion. Um, and what ends up happening is that the king signs the Treaty of Accession. Now this is also contested. Some people say that the accession was signed. Uh, well, some say we have never seen the document, mm-hmm. right? So there's, there's confusion around whether this was signed or not. And this accession treaty says that the king allowed India to take care of three things for Kashmiri state, which is communications, military, and one more thing that I'm forgetting. Uh, so it's just a few things. Mm-hmm. And based on that treaty, it was also ruled out that once the army had stopped this invasion, quote unquote, the Indian army was to, go, was to leave Kashmir. So this happens on October 27, 1947. Indian army first time arrives in Kashmir and stops the, this invasion from happening. And what I want your listeners to really pay attention is that that is the first time Kashmir gets divided into two parts one under the Pakistani control, and now one under the Indian control. And there is a line between the two Kashmir's which is called the line of control. Even today, it is not a border. It's a de facto line of control. And the armies of two nations are fighting face to face on this line of control and for controlling Kashmir. Um, And it is such a violent line that based on how much fighting has ensued last night, the villages could change. So some villages could be in Pakistan today, but tomorrow they could be in India hmm. because it is not a permanent line and people are regularly fighting over this line. And what is alarming, I think, for all the listeners to think is that these are two nuclear nuclear nations right. who, are, who are not to be trusted with such weaponry. And it's not in the end just about Kashmiri people, it's about the whole subcontinent yeah. and even beyond. Um, and that, that particular politics, that particular moment has left us with the Indian side of Kashmir that I, I work on more, which is now the highest militarized zone in the world. There is one soldier Indian soldier for every 11 Kashmiris.
0: So I read that it's what, close to about 800,000 troops? 700,000 troops. 700,000 troops uh, that have been there consistently. Yes. Uh, And that presence has been maintained since the 40s. Uh,
1: Actually, there were small escalations. Basically, it started with a particular number, but after 89, that is when the first mass armed uprising of Kashmiris happened or started that militarization was seen as a normal response so more and more more and more army was sent every time Kashmiris were demanding political rights so more and more army was sent as a response to rightful demands of Kashmiri people which is right to self-determination, and not just right to self-determination was ignored. Now this has translated into massive um, human rights violation record, which the UN report in 2018 directs us to. But now what I say is that it's not even about human rights violations. It is clear cut dehumanization of Kashmiris, Mm. which is not that few of their rights are being taken away, but that they are increasingly Considered not as humans or not worthy of life, right. even, which is dangerous.
0: I've read some some horrific accounts of torture that can only be inflicted on an individual when you don't see them as human. Uh, I won't. I'm going to spare you all the, um, the 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 pain of having to to hear it. But uh, there was an article in the Washington Post uh, recently, and it described one of those acts. Um, uh, and, and to that point, what is life like for, if you can say, the average Kashmiri um, that is living in a space where prior to and, and, and okay, so I'm guess I'm giving a two part question because uh, you mentioned Sheikh um, Abdullah and how he being one of the first uh, individuals being able to go and, and receive a western education and come back and fight for the rights you know of his fellow uh, fellow Kashmiri. Um, are there particular rights that are not afforded um, uh, to Kashmiris right now? Things that we probably would look like, okay, what do you mean you don't have right to uh, Internet access? Or uh, is your freedom of movement um, curtailed to some degree? Uh, what, what, is average, what is the average life like?
1: I think it's not in terms of what is allowed or what is not allowed okay. but in terms of what happens on ground which okay. is you know in which way we can also think of how let's say racial violence happens in west it's not about not giving them rights in the paper mm-hmm. but how they are seen by the system as bodies that can be done away with or that that don't necessarily have the right to be seen as people And if I have to tell you in clear terms, for example, the Indian Army um, has several uh, colonial era laws that are applicable in Kashmir. The first one is ASPA, which is Armed Forces Special Powers Act. This act gives Indian Army the right to shoot anyone on mere suspicion. So they don't even have to tell you why, but they can just suspect someone to be thinking about fighting the state and they can kill them. Um, and this is just one. There are, uh, there's another one, which is called the Public Safety Act, under which the, gov- the government can actually arrest a person on mere suspicion and put them behind the bars for more than five years without a right to bail. And what we have seen is extremely young people, like of the age group of 9 to 20, come in conflict with the police and end up with PSAs. And human rights organizations are telling us that young boys are getting sodomized in these jails on a regular basis. So we're talking about atrocious amount of uh, abuse, human rights abuse, which wouldn't even, it's not even about few rights here and there, but straight away acceptance that Kashmiris are not to be seen as human beings. Um, And what what also we saw is the introduction of the buckshot gun as the
0: dead eyes yes
1: mm. as a as a way to fight protesters right. so in 2016 alone we have more than 5000 cases of young boys losing their eyesight and 5000 is a lot we're talking about misery of generations and intergenerational trauma here from the psychological point of view so um if I, had to, if I had to say in one word, it's like a prison. And very few Kashmiris get to go out and tell this story to the outside world. And now with, with arts and with social media, some of it is coming out, but it's still largely understudied, the extent of damage that has been inflicted on Kashmiri people.
0: So we had some of the, and this was, I think this came out from Human Rights Watch, Uh, they gave some of the uh, statistics. Uh, Kashmiris killed by the Indian Army at the time of the report, 94,479. So we know that number has has, has gone up. Uh, Custodial killings by Indian Army, that means people who are in the custody of the Army, uh, 7,048. Disappearances of Kashmiris at the hands of Indian police, 10,125. And I I believe I can see how that would be when you have – uh, when you have uh, laws in place, like you said, just on su- uh, suspicion, we can you, you you're incarcerated and then subject to torture. So uh, and th- there's more and more, and then we go down to uh, Kashmiri um, uh, gang rapes by Indians in Kashmir, ten thousand two hundred eighty-three. It is it is appalling. A shocking to go down this list. Uh, and, and then you, you come down to uh, women who are widowed and Kashmir buildings destroyed 100, over 106,000. With these types of numbers, you see just an obvious destabilization. Yes. And how do you know? How does one fight back? You know? How does one advocate for themselves when you are living in a divided land? Yeah. Um, what, is, what does that look like? I mean, obviously, what, what you're doing. I mean, it's obviously it's a part of that, you know, creating awareness, letting people know this this is a condition that you're probably not aware of. You just think about lush grasses and scenery and not a history of of, of struggle.
1: Yes. I think one of the reasons I also use the word dehumanization is because Kashmiris don't have any means to fight back that kind of uh, violence. What I mean to say is if you see Afghanistan or you see Iraq, our American army has regular regularly been persecuting its personnel who have conducted human rights violations and in Kashmir, however, there is not even a single case of persecution of Indian army men who are found to be violating Kashmiri rights. So there are thousands of people who have taken to courts and police systems and justice systems. What ends up happening is that they fight a case for 20 years and after 20 years, under these laws, they are forced to shift these cases to the army courts and never hear about them. What happened to these uh, you know, these, these struggles? Um, same with the, the question of disappeared men. We have um, Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons, which is a long and old organization that has been fighting to figure out where these people went. Um, the same thing. You know, any time you come close to the to the point of justice where it's actually shown that you know such and such army personnel is involved, or such and such misdemeanour did happen, there is there is pressure from the about to take these co- co- you know take these cases and you know just make them disappear from the public eye. So because the justice system has failed to deliver any source of justice, what we see is more and more radicalization of young people. Because if you see, there are generations of Kashmiris who have grown up in this violence. They have never seen a peaceful time. And they are aided with the memory of so much intergenerational trauma that they don't see a point in, you know, persevering anymore. So we see, what we have seen in 19, uh, in to, since 2016, is a lot of young, highly educated Kashmiri kids joining
0: armed struggle. As far as the, um, I guess, the, the structural elements or impacts um, in, in acquiring justice, who is populating the courts? You know, are, are, there, are there Kashmiri? Um, individuals that are a part of the justice system uh, and they're simply unable to prosecute because of you know external pressures from India. W- what is that what does that look like?
1: So what happened in 1947 itself was that uh, Kashmiris in the in the Indian occupied side were uh, because of the instrument of accession. India could not just merge Kashmir because right. it was another state so they had to create a certain you know they had to create certain laws where it says you know kashmir is merging under such and such condition so it was sort of conditional and over the period of time over the period of last 60 years there's erosion in that autonomy of little bit autonomy that kashmiris had so for example up until 53 we had our own pr- prime minister which is also after Perhaps you know the the si- accession was signed, quote unquote, which is still contested. Right. Um, and what you saw is that even in our own constituent assembly at that time, in Kashmir's own constituent assembly, uh, people could uh, could only have laws that were still administered by the kings from the past, which were not very progressive laws. For example, the king was. Hindu himself, and he had banned, for example, eating beef for majority of Muslims, which some of these laws are are still applicable in Kashmir, and they don't make any sense. They are absolutely defunct laws. Um, And over the period of time, India will push their own legal framework onto Kashmiri state. But what happened is that did not create any progress because ultimately the state is controlled by the military, by sheer naked violent force of the military, right? right. So um, even if even if the court systems may have Kashmiris in them, their their laws, their regulations and their judgments do not cut much slack because ultimately the military has that naked power to get away with anything. And then you also have um, the state of New Delhi which from remote control tries to control also what happens in this little bit of state administration which is left um, for instance the first time the question of uh, right to self-determination was raised by Sheikh Abdullah in 53 he was immediately incarcerated for 11 years oh, wow. and he was only let out after he agreed that you know the sec- accession was final or somehow, you know, whatever, we are good with India. And in that meantime, uh, Indian state did uh, brought back a a kind of Kashmiri who would favor Indian state in Kashmir. So Bakshi's regime is considered to be very corrupt and pushing on the Indian agenda or Indian interest in the state. So what I'm trying to say is that... um, all of this is so convoluted and complicated, um, and there is no political will to resolve it, which is taking a heavy toll on the population, which is which is living there, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and worse still, that there's no li- I mean, there's no means of justice. There's no way to fight back on this the way the occupational state is functional functioning, and that th- those are the way, reasons why we call it occupation is because they aren't helping people to uh, understand or fight fight back on some of these uh, grave injustices. Right. Yeah. So
0: in terms of what we would consider to be basic social services, uh, those things are not being Uh, They're not affected by the presence of the Indian military. Uh,
1: Social services... I mean, they're
0: not giving them, right? That's not what they're there for. They're just there as a reminder of force. uh,
1: Yes, so the Indian Army is actually more like a naked force out there. Um, They are doing general policing, general... um, I think, in many cases, policing overall. Um, And then... Yes, state does administer social services. In many of the cases, those are not, those are now not efficient at all. For example, we have uh, the issue of psychological like problems, which is huge. Yeah. More than 75% Kashmiris are psychologically ill. These are studies that are showing it for being subjected to such violence for a long period of time. Um, while the state does maintain that a bit you know there's also a huge private sector which has many times aided the resistance movement so for example transportation in kashmir is still private and that's because and that's when if kashmiris have to pull out rallies this transportation system will be part of that so you see that there's a clear divide in how the state works and how people are functioning and doing their daily political life. Yeah. So,
0: on on one hand, there are the obvious uh, and naked human uh, rights abuses that are taking place at the hands of the Indian army. Um, and on the other side, you you have Pakistan. But you, so, and you have this this divided line. But even though the violence associated with the Indian presence uh, may not be there as far as Pakistan is concerned but there's not a commitment on either side to an independent Kashmir. Is that correct, uh, Laura?
1: Well, uh, not from the states. Both states would very much like Kashmir to remain a dispute between them, and there are, very, there are many reasons for it. It's not clearly just about exoticizing a piece of land. Yeah. There is geostrategic interest, there is interest in the resource. I don't know, many of your listeners might not know, Kashmir is a major source of water for both India and Pakistan. Oh. So anytime, anytime if Pakistan rakes up the issue, India is gonna say, we're gonna close your water. And what is also terrible and naked colonization is uh, while Kashmir generates more than 50 to 60% of India's electricity, They have to buy it from India. Their own electricity. So we have like horrific colonization happening right now, and we still think colonization has ended. In Kashmir's case, it hasn't, and it's brutal. Yeah.
0: Wow! Wow. The last question: Uh, Can you tell us a bit about because this is a really intriguing title? I just want to just kind of jump to your book, let folks know about it, and uh, you know they can pick it up. What was the, what, what's, I mean, is, is the, kind of expound on the title, uh, Muslim Women, Agency, and Resistance Politics, the Case of Kashmir. So you bring all of this back to Kashmir.
1: Yes. Um, and let me tell you why I got interested in it. Uh, so I, I grew up in Kashmir up until I was 19. And my experience of growing up in Kashmir and Kashmiri women was something very unique. Uh, for the fact that Kashmiri women are so resilient, they are so powerful. Um, I have a gra- I had a grandmother who was almost 80 and she remembered more than 5,000 folk songs. She never went to school. But wow. she would educate me about Kashmir through those songs. Um, so I grew up with a sense that Kashmiri women were so liberated and they, they definitely had uh, more authority and autonomy in their communities. And part of the reason was also because Kashmir was somehow a matrilineal society early mm-hmm. on, even before Islam came to Kashmir. Yeah. So women had always, always enjoyed more power. Um, but when I became a student in India, I was often confronting Islamophobic questions about Muslim women in general which went like, oh, but Muslim women can do this or that, or, you know, they, they cannot uh, go against their people. or So a lot of further exotification of Kashmiri Muslim women. And at that point, I got interested to know, like, okay, why is it that in our scholarship we don't know anything about Kashmiri Muslim women? While they are everywhere, they have been participating in the Kashmiri resistance movement for the longest period, for 60 years. Um, And then um, as I went through further and I did my gender studies program, I was uh, looking at feminism as a sort of Western political thought. And how it generally looked at Muslim women globally. And I was quite perturbed by how it was consistently looking at Muslim women as cultural icons. As women whose role is only to maybe present the cultural way of Islam. You know, like just wear a hijab. Yeah. Or maybe just... They're walking billboards for Islam. Yeah. So just that. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily as historical subjects themselves who have done things, who have who have been agents in their particular context. So of course they have not fought for liberal rights maybe, but in the context that they were living, those rights were very liberal for them. Um, So I tackle the subject of what Muslim Kashmiri women have been doing in this resistance politics for 60 years, and then how they confront both the naked occupational patriarchy which subjects them to so much violence, like sexual violence, gendered violence, um, and also how they put up with the general gendered culture of their communities, right? So where there will be um, directions about whether they should study or not, whether they should go out or not, while there will be communities trying to interfere with their regular social rights, and their political rights are also taken away by the state. So in this book, I try to show that complication, that how we are judging Muslim women without really looking at them in terms of what they have done or achieved as historical subjects in Kashmir. So I look at three different uh, movements, the one which we call as the plebiscite front movement that started in 1960s, where Sheikh Abdullah and his allies tried to argue that we need to have self-determination. And in that, what was the role of women? How, they, what, how did they present themselves? Then I look at the armed struggle. And I look at uh, particularly contentious Islamist women okay. who are, and who operate very differently in Kashmir because they're not only fighting the state, they're also fighting the patriarchy in their society um, at a massive level. And then I also look at um, Kashmiri women writers who first time start writing in English from 2010 to sort of talk back to the empire of saying, you know, like, here we are and this is what we think. Um, so I would recommend your readers. I know the book is expensive and that's how academic books generally yeah. are. And in my defense, I'm not getting any royalties. So <laughs> <laughs> please don't hate me. But please go ahead and read this book. It's, um, I'm going to give you a sense of how how much more vibrant Kashmiri Muslim women are and then, in particular, Kashmiri women have been for the longest period of time. Yeah.
0: Well, Dr. Malik, it has been a pleasure having you here uh, uh, and, and, and learning from you. Uh, and I'm certainly looking forward to reading the book myself. It, it sounds absolutely uh, intriguing.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that would be wonderful.
0: So we pray that the rest of your trip goes well. Uh <laughs> Uh, try, try to get some rest yes
1: I, I am I am uh, set to have a lecture tonight in Northwestern University okay. I thought I should let your listeners know that um, I'm not sure about that
0: we'll find out we'll find out we'll find, okay, out.
1: We'll find out and if, if anyone has questions they can definitely reach out to us and I also speak in University of Chicago on 30th okay. and yeah And
0: how can people uh, keep up with you on uh, maybe social media or anything like that?
1: Yes, I am there on Twitter as Malik without space. But you can also reach out to me um, through scholarly uh, websites like Academia or Facebook. I'm pretty active on Facebook.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you again, Dr.